And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Well, I know that later today, um, some of you will be watching the Super Bowl. And I'm sure that for some of you, the interesting part of the evening will not be the game. It'll be the commercials. And uh, some of those commercials are bound to feature celebrities explicitly or implicitly endorsing various products. I have a feeling that, that most of you won't switch your insurance provider or purchase a certain type of potato chip or get a certain credit card just because Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or Sam Jackson is pitching it, but I must admit I do enjoy those uh, uh, State Farm commercials with Aaron Rodgers. Um, but, but likely those things will not influence you tonight, as entertaining as they might be, uh, but endorsements in other areas might influence you. Uh, some of you love books. And some of you have probably checked the endorsements written just inside the front cover. Uh, You you want to see who's who's endorsing that book, who who appreciates that book. I've actually purchased books because of the endorsements of people that I knew and trusted and respected. Now, I've also run away from books because they were endorsed by certain people. Endorsements can be important. Sometimes you look for endorsements. Sometimes you want to be endorsed. Some, some of you have searched for jobs, and, and what do you put on your resume? You put references, people who can in, endorse you and vouch for you. On the one hand, stamps of approval, uh, endorsements are important to us, but on the other hand, we're not, we're not going to trust a ringing endorsement by just anyone. But imagine if something were endorsed by God himself. God-backed, God-certified, God-approved. Imagine uh, flipping to the endorsement page of a book, and right there you saw an endorsement from God. That would be impressive. Or imagine a person who walks into a job interview, and in his hand is a letter of recommendation from God, God himself. Well, there's actually something in the universe that has indeed received a perfect endorsement from God, perfect certification, perfect approval, his very best recommendation, and that thing is none other than Jesus Christ himself. In fact, that's the whole point of the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Now, 50 days prior to the events of Acts 2, Jesus had been crucified. But three days later, he rose again, and he began instructing his disciples about the kingdom of God. And this gets his disciples really excited, and they wonder if this is the time that God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Now, in the days of old, Israel was a mighty kingdom. And at its peak, it was ruled by King David, and Israel was powerful and wealthy and smashed their enemies. But those days were long gone. As Israel had been conquered and ruled by foreign empire after foreign empire, and there were yet prophecies about a great messianic king to come, a great Jewish king to come. The the Davidic kingdom would once again be restored, and, and Jesus affirms to his disciples that yes, the kingdom is coming, but its scope goes way beyond Israel. 
It goes way beyond that. Jesus tells them in Acts 1-8 that, that they, as heralds of the king, as ambassadors of the kingdom, will be Jesus' witnesses, not just in Israel, but even to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus aims to establish a global people filled with, a uh, global kingdom filled with people of every race and every nation and every language. And Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his ascension is to wait, to wait to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and empower them to be effective witnesses for the King. And so Acts chapter 2 begins with only 120 Christ followers. That's the size of the church, about Harbin size when everybody shows up. And they're waiting. It's the annual festival of Pentecost. And pilgrims from everywhere have come to Jerusalem to worship God, to give thanks for the abundant provision of God. And as the 120 are gathered waiting in one place near the temple, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them and gives them the the supernatural ability to speak in other languages, languages they did not know. And a large crowd is drawn to the temple area. You've got thousands of people there, people from every nation under heaven, and they're able to hear the message about Jesus in their own native tongue. It's a sign. It's a sign of the international makeup of God's kingdom, no longer Jewish-dominated, but comprising of people of every tribe and tongue. And so, naturally, uh, the crowd is amazed. And they're asking, well, what, what does this mean? And Peter answers that question in the form of a sermon, which we began to look at last week. He says, the ancient prophecies are being fulfilled. God is pouring out his Holy Spirit, not just on a handful of Jewish leaders in Israel as in the days of old. Instead, the Spirit will indwell and fill and empower all of God's people everywhere. Indeed, the outpouring of the Spirit is a sign that the long-awaited Messiah, the King, has come, and therefore we are in the last days. Judgment is coming, but, Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's where we left off last week. As we continue to look at Peter's sermon today, we're going to discover exactly who this Lord is that Peter is urging us to call on. It's Jesus of Nazareth who is the most unlikely of figures in the minds of most most people. But Peter is about to lay forth evidences and proofs and demonstrations of God's ringing endorsement of Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Now, if you're here this morning as a believer, Peter's message is a great refresher course on the essence of the gospel. If you had only three minutes to share the gospel, what, what are the most significant things that you could share? Well, well, we'll learn about that right here in Peter's sermon. If you're an unbeliever here or maybe watching by video, this is a great day for you to be with us. You might disagree. But what Peter shares in this sermon is the most important thing that you'll ever hear. It's, the, it's more important than, than who wins the Super Bowl. It's more important than your plans for this week. It's more important than your career, your personal ambitions. This is what you need to hear the most. You need to know about Jesus, about God's ringing endorsement of Jesus, and about what you must do in response. So let's keep reading Peter's message. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. This is Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 22, and we'll read on down through verse 38. God's Word says, and this is Peter's sermon here, 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had swore with, him, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, <clears throat> nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word. And I pray that the Spirit would speak through this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Theologian Charles Hodge said that the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it, and it is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. We actually see that in our text today that we just read. The heart of Peter's message is simple, and yet at the same time, we're going to come across some of the deepest, most profound doctrine and theology in all the Bible. Now, Peter's aim is to demonstrate that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a royal title. It means Messiah, King, God's special King who would come and bring salvation. But but Jesus didn't actually have a lot going for him in the eyes of most Jews of that day. And so Peter now is essentially going to give an apologetic for the Lordship and the Messiahship of Christ, and, and, and he will demonstrate how God has endorsed and has put his seal of approval on Jesus. And the first thing Peter draws our attention to is Jesus' life. Jesus' life, which proves that he is man and God. In verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. 
Now, some people want to downplay the humanity of Jesus, but Peter, interestingly, starts his gospel presentation right here. Jesus is a man. Uh, What's more, Peter singles him out and says, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He has to do that. Jesus was a common name back then. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that might not mean much to you today, but that would have automatically been a strike against Jesus. Nazareth was not a respected place in Israel. It was despised. It was made fun of. It was considered uh, just a backwater, hick country town. You remember the the reaction of Nathanael, one of Jesus' first disciples, and he heard about Jesus, and and he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, and he said, are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Even even people in Nazareth dismissed Jesus because he was from Nazareth. They they would say, wait a minute, we know Jesus, we know his mom Mary, his his dad Joseph built my furniture. Uh, Jesus was his apprentice in the carpentry shop. He can't be a big deal, he's just one of us. He's from Nazareth. Jesus was a man, but he was more than a man. Peter goes on to say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or, or authenticated or uh, endorsed or certified, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This man did miracles. He did mighty wonders. He healed lepers. He opened the eyes of the blind. He calmed the, the, the fierce storm on the sea. He even cast demons out of people who were oppressed by the devil. And notice what Peter says at the end of verse 22. He says, God did these signs through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This is public knowledge. And many of you saw the miracles with your own eyes. And what's very interesting about this is that no one actually disputed the fact that Jesus did miracles. Nobody nobody ever disputed that. Uh, No one suggested that Jesus' wonders were fake, uh, that that he was just some sort of clever illusionist like like David Blaine or, or David Copperfield, who you might see perform in Las Vegas. Not even his fiercest opponents denied the supernatural works that were done through Jesus. And and folks, if they could have exposed him as a fake, they would have brought forth the evidence immediately because they hated him. They had no evidence. They knew he had powers. And so the best they could do against him was claim that his supernatural powers were from the devil. It's It's a desperate and weak claim, and Jesus easily dismantles it in Luke chapter 11. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice there that the the works, the miracles of Jesus were signs that the kingdom of God was breaking into the world in a new and fresh way. Jesus' miracles, think about it this way, Jesus' miracles were not violations of the laws of nature. They weren't violations of the laws of nature as much as they were a restoration of nature in a world that had been twisted and corrupted by the curse. When when Jesus' kingdom is fully consummated, there won't be any more blind people or paralytics or or, or people suffering from any kinds of of ailments. There won't be any more fierce, life-threatening storms. 
and demons will never oppress and torment men again. As Isaac Watts wrote, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. King Jesus will reverse the curse. It's already beginning to be reversed. His, his mighty works and signs were foretastes. They were appetizers. They were, you could call them, previews of coming attractions, a glimpse of the coming kingdom, and, and proof positive that God is with Jesus and that he has fully endorsed him. Jesus was a man, but so much more. And that's where Peter is going in this sermon. In fact, if you, uh, if you look up to verse 21, I didn't read this this morning, but we looked at it last week. But if you go back to verse 21, Peter says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter there is quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, where Joel actually writes, whoever will call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Yahweh is the personal name of God himself. So watch this. Peter in Acts 2.21 equates the Lord with Yahweh. It's the same person. And then if you go down to verse 36, Peter tells us that Jesus is that Lord. Ergo, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And here, Peter introduces us to one of the most profound doctrines in all of the Bible, what theologians call the hypostatic union, which refers to the fact that Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. His divine and human nature are united in one person. That's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox. (laughs) It is hard to totally understand and get your head around that, and yet that's what the Bible teaches. And it's actually crucial to making the gospel work, as we'll see in a moment. But moving on, Peter shows us yet another way that God endorses Jesus while also introducing us to another true but paradoxical doctrine, and that is Jesus' death, sovereignly planned by God, freely carried out by man. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jared in his sermon mentioned that the disciples had a PR problem in regards to Judas' portrayal of Jesus. I like how he put it that way. Related to that, the Death of Jesus is a huge PR problem. If Jesus is actually Lord and Messiah, how do you explain his murder? That made no sense to the first century Jew who had no categories whatsoever for a suffering and dying Messiah. Even Jesus' own disciples were constantly pushing back against this idea. Matthew 16 probably gives us the best picture of this attitude where Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ. The Messiah, the King. Then Jesus says that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and, and Peter's probably thinking, great, going to Jerusalem, that, that's, where, that's where David the King was headquartered, that's where you're going to go and set up your headquarters and rule and reign. But then Jesus busts his bubble and says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed. And then what happens? What does Peter do? Peter takes him aside, and he rebukes him. He's angry with Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Made no sense to Peter. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs win the battle. Messiahs destroy their enemies. They aren't destroyed by their enemies. Remember later on when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and you've got all the crowd, they're waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now save now. 
and they weren't talking about spiritual salvation. They were talking about political and national restoration and a successful insurrection against Rome. And you can imagine everyone's excitement. There, there had been people in the past that claimed to be Messiah, but none of them were like, Jesus, J- Jesus has powers. He could create food out of thin air. <clears throat> he could raise the dead. That would come in handy on the battlefield, don't you think? Food and resurrections. Surely this man is the one to lead us. But then, just, just days after Palm Sunday, when it became clear that Jesus was not going to, with drawn sword, lead them to victory, and also it seemed like his own band of disciples were falling apart and denying him and scattering him, the hopeful cries of save now turned into the angry cries of crucify him. And remember the depressed disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? They said, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Implication? Well, obviously he wasn't. Obviously we got it wrong. And on top of that, consider the mode of Jesus' death. Crucifixion. The worst death possible. The scriptures say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus obviously was cursed by God. He can't be the Messiah. Now do you see why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is a stumbling block for Jews? Again, major PR problem. But Peter... The same Peter, by the way, who at first vehemently rejected the idea of suffering Messiah, murdered Messiah, now the same Peter says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. That's phenomenal. You know, many people have suggested different ideas for why Jesus was killed. The Jews saw him as a false Messiah and blasphemer. In more modern times, people have suggested the crucifixion was an accident. It was a big mistake. Jesus didn't intend to die, but things got out of control, and his enemies got the best of him. But Peter here says something amazing, that all of this has happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, in the New Testament, God's foreknowledge doesn't just mean that he knew in advance that it would happen. The word Foreknowledge is stronger than that in the Greek. Foreknowledge means God's foreplan, his, his foreordination. In other words, the cross wasn't an accident that God straightened out in the resurrection. It wasn't just that this horrible thing happened and then, and then God had to come in after the fact and clean up a mess that he did not intend. No, no, no. God planned for it to go down this way from the very beginning. Jesus did come to earth to fight a war to fight a battle, but a battle very different than most Jews expected. In fact, we see God's battle plan foretold in the Old Testament from as early as Genesis 3.15. In the very beginning of human history, immediately after Adam and Eve's sin, God revealed to them his plan to save humanity, and it was a war plan uh, that an offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of Satan, and yet in the process, the offspring's heel would be bruised. Uh, the offspring would be wounded in the process of defeating the devil. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus came as a man. And, and this is 
why the hypostatic union is so important, God had to become a man to represent man. He himself never sinned, but he hung there and died as a substitute for sinful man, taking the sins of people upon himself. And and the scriptures are right. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus experienced the curse of God. As God the Father poured out the fullness of his anger and wrath, not on sinners, but on Jesus. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is hell forever, and Jesus suffered hell literally on the cross. But not forever. Because he was not merely a finite man, but the infinite God. He was able to pay the infinite price in a moment in time. And because he was perfectly good and had no sin, he wasn't like the sinner in hell who keeps on sinning and therefore would have to keep on being punished forever. And so Jesus was able to pay the full price of sin for his people. So the question is, who killed Jesus? God did. God did. It's part of the plan all along. Remember what Isaiah 53.10 says? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will to crush Jesus. And yet, Peter also says something very important. And that is that the means by which God's plan came to fruition was through evil people. Look again at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so what we see here is another incredible and deep doctrine. You've got the sovereignty of God coexisting alongside the choices of people. God planned and foreordained Jesus' death. But at the same time, Peter holds these people responsible for the murder of Jesus. Not that all of them literally hung Jesus on the cross. Pilate sentenced them to death. Roman soldiers drove the spikes into Jesus' flesh. But perhaps some in the crowd at Pentecost were among those who shouted, crucify him. Even more of them were likely indifferent to him. But all of them had rejected Jesus in one way, shape, or form, and therefore all of them were complicit in the world's rejection of Jesus that led to his death. But what I don't want you to miss is that Peter holds them accountable. Peter does not say, Jesus was crucified, but don't worry about it. God's sovereign. This was all planned out by God from the very beginning, so you're not responsible You're innocent in all this. No, no, no. Instead, Peter says, you did this. You crucified him. He is making moral judgments on them. He is holding them accountable for their rejection of Messiah because God's sovereignty does not eliminate man's responsibility. Now, make no mistake, the Bible does uphold the supreme sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is of the Lord's. That means the outcome of every dice roll in Las Vegas is determined by God. As R.C. Sproul said, uh, there are no maverick molecules running rogue in the universe. There's no such thing as coincidence or random chance. God is orchestrating all of history, and yet... 
Remarkably, at the same time, man does whatever he wants to do. When Pilate pronounced the death sentence on Jesus, it wasn't like he felt some force controlling his mouth against his will doing that. He chose to do that. The chief priest conspired against Jesus, not because they were puppets on a string, but because they wanted to. They, they chose to out of their own will. Uh, the crowds that chanted crucify him, it wasn't some outside force moving their mouths up and down. They wanted him dead. Uh, when the Roman guards were pounding those spikes into Jesus' flesh, it, it wasn't that some guard was like, I, I really don't want to pick up this hammer and drive it into Jesus' wrist, but I just can't help myself. So who killed Jesus? The people did. But Demer, I, th- I thought you just said God did. Yeah, I did say that. Well, how do you explain that? How how do you explain God's sovereign control on the one hand while man's doing whatever he chooses to do on the other hand? How do you explain that? I don't care to explain it. I really don't. Folks, it's above my pay grade. Hire a different preacher if you want something like that. You're not going to find one. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't explain it. And you want me to try? Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths together to to one another, and he said, I would not try. I would never reconcile friends. Likewise, J.I. Packer writes that in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. So, if you are in a lot of angst and consternation over the Bible's teaching of the absolute sovereignty of God and the Bible's simultaneous teaching on human responsibility, if you're in a lot of angst and consternation about that, my pastoral advice to you is just to relax. Lighten up. Seriously, I mean that. I mean, I used, to, I used to be that way, banging my head up against the wall and trying to figure this out and trying to get down to the bottom of it all and not at rest until I could have all the answers spelled out to my satisfaction and, 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 and until my head was bruised and bloodied. <laughs> and I gave up. Folks, don't torture yourself trying to figure it out. Just, just receive and believe what the Bible says and move on and enjoy the rest of your day. That's, that should be your response to it. All right, we need to keep going. Another crucial element of the gospel, which also brings us to another paradoxical truth, but shows us in no uncertain terms God's endorsement of Jesus, is Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection. He who died now lives. When we think about gospel preaching, the cross ends up being the central focus of our message, and amen to that. The death of Jesus is, is right there at the center. That's good. However, interestingly, when you look at the sermons of the disciples in Acts, and we're talking over a dozen sermons, what stands out is that the resurrection is the central focus. The fact that Jesus is alive. For the disciples, the resurrection is the hinge on which the gospel turns on. If the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus' life and death are meaningless. If the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus' ascension and exaltation did not happen. Without the resurrection, Christianity is done. 
But if he's alive, then all of these other realities have meaning and are true. And so Peter is essentially in this gospel presentation putting all of his, be- all of his eggs in the basket of the resurrection. He's hanging everything on this point, and that's a big deal because you know what? They're not far from where Jesus' tomb was. If there's a body in there, it could have been easily brought forth, but, but no one did. Not even Christianity's earliest enemies who had every reason to discredit the apostles' message, but they could not produce the body. Tomb's right there. We, we can settle this right now. Let's go. Well, why couldn't that, they not produce the body? Verse 24, Peter says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter talks about the, 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 the birth pangs of death. I think Peter uses that imagery as a way of saying that the grave could no more hold Jesus back than a pregnant woman can hold back a baby. Those of you who've been pregnant, you know what that's like. There just comes a moment where, ready or not, here comes baby. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's on my timetable or not. Here it comes. You can't stop it. Peter is saying, likewise, the grave could not stop Jesus from getting up and walking out of it. When the time came for Jesus to come forth, he did. Think about it this way. Death had an impossible job. It's as if the devil said, okay, death, here's your job. Hold Jesus down. Just keep him in your bonds. Don't let him loose. It's an impossible job. We just sang about it a few minutes ago, right? There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Look at verse 24. Peter says God did this. God raised him up. Peter wants it to be crystal clear that God is putting his endorsement, his stamp of approval on Jesus. And this is why Peter goes where he does next, to to the Old Testament. Peter says in verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter there is quoting Psalm 16, written by David. Let's remember who David was. He was God's special king of Israel, and therefore he enjoyed a a special favor and and protection of God. And so in one sense, David could write Psalm 16 about himself in that God did protect David physically, even when he had enemies all around him, and, and God for a time kept David from death, from Hades, that's the place of the dead, uh, the grave. Uh, time and time again, David was spared from death. And also, David, during the reign, during his reign, was God's special holy one, the anointed one. David would have rightly had the title Messiah or Christ in his day. But David only had temporary protection. David died. He did end up in Hades, in the grave. And his body stayed there. And Peter exposes that problem in verse 29. He says, brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Uh, David's tomb was not far from where they were and David was still in it, which means, and this is Peter's point, 
what David was writing about, while it may apply to him in some limited sense, can't apply to him in the ultimate sense. David died a long time ago, and he's still dead. David's body has seen corruption and decay. You open up that tomb, and you're going to find a pile of old, rotted bones. So then why would David write these things in Psalm 16? Well, Peter tells us, verse 29, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was not ultimately writing about himself. Because he was a prophet, and because he trusted in God's promises, David knew that something bigger and better than David was coming. And so, he writes Psalm 16, and and, and you could say as he's writing it, that David made for himself shoes that were too big for him to fill. David knew that he was not the final Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, but that one, one day would come after him, and this king, unlike David, would be greater than death itself. Amazingly, folks, David actually foresaw the death of Jesus and his resurrection. David knew, David knew, unlike the Jews in Jesus' day, that it was part of God's plan all along to have the true Messiah end up in the grave, but then to conquer the grave. Now, how much more David knew, uh, we, we don't know, but he knew that, and he trusted and rejoiced in it. David was a great king, but he did not receive God's ultimate endorsement because David was not the one, which is why David was, is still in the grave. And so that brings us back again to God's endorsement of Jesus. And so Peter says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. It was God's doing. He's put a stamp of approval on Jesus. You see, death always has a judicial edge to it. The grave, the tomb, is a physical reminder that that person in that grave has succumbed to the curse of sin because that person has sinned. But Jesus was not guilty. And so as as God raises Jesus up, it is a public declaration of the innocence of Christ. And if he's innocent, it means that the price he paid for our sins was sufficient. But Peter doesn't stop there. He moves from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' exaltation. This is the next point. Jesus' exaltation. He who descended to the lowest place ascends to the highest heaven. You know, no one who has been so highly exalted has descended so low. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2. It says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then, Paul writes, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The resurrection is only the beginning of Jesus' exaltation. It's only the first step. Peter, in verse 33 says that being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Uh, Jesus' exaltation speaks of Jesus' glorified status as king. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of Jesus as one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is ruling and reigning even now as king. And he has received the spirit from the Father, which is further proof of God's endorsement of Jesus. And what's the proof for us that Jesus has received the spirit? Well, Jesus having received the Spirit, now in turn begins to pour out that Spirit, to bestow that Spirit onto His people. And so that takes us full circle to the beginning of Acts 2, where the Spirit falls upon the 120. And Peter speaks of that that last day's promise of God, that, that, that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Well, the royal theme of, of Peter's sermon continues. And starting in verse 34, he quotes again from a psalm of David, and this time it's Psalm 110, where where David says, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, okay, hang on. (laughs) So, 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 So now David addresses a second person as Lord, somebody greater than David. Well, who could be greater than David? Well, by now we know that David was looking ahead to Jesus. Jesus is David's Lord. And right there in one verse, we get a glimpse of the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists as three persons, and here David writes about two of those three persons having a conversation. And so, verse 34, we have the Lord, God, saying to the Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That quote, by the way, zeroes in on the theme of judgment which if you're preaching the gospel, you eventually have to get to that uncomfortable topic. And Peter's point is that Jesus is the enthroned king. And according to Psalm 110, the only remaining act now for the king is the final judgment of God's enemies. God's enemies being made a footstool for Messiah. That's the, that's the, the last big thing on God's big cosmic timetable. And and Peter draws out this inference of judgment when he declares in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, or God has declared him, or God has endorsed him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The point in all that is clear, that Jesus of Nazareth is no ordinary Israelite, and yet they killed him. And by highlighting their guilt, Peter underscores the reality that they have crucified the Messiah and therefore they are enemies of God. And so, after laying out all the evidence, all the scriptural support, all of the proofs of God's endorsement of Jesus, it becomes, to many in the crowd, like a dagger thrust in the heart. The light bulbs begin to go off. They realized the one that they had hoped for, the one that they had looked for, the one that they had longed for, Messiah, he actually came and they killed him. So now what? Where does that leave the enemies of God? Well, that leads to my final point, which is Jesus' mercy. Those who deserve great judgment receive great grace. Verse 37 says they were cut to the heart And they ask, what shall we do? What shall we do? And I find it absolutely remarkable that Peter does not say, 
there's nothing you can do. (laughs) You rejected him. You murdered him. You set yourself against him. And guess what? He's alive. He's reigning. And that means you're dead. Nothing you can do about it. Peter doesn't say that. Now, next week, we'll take a closer look at Peter's response. But in short, Peter urges the crowd to repent, which, which simply means to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus, receive him as king, trust in him. And if they do, they will be forgiven for everything they've done. And they, too, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what that means? Here's the amazing part. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which then means that they also receive God's endorsement. Because the Holy Spirit is the sign that they are no longer an enemy of God, but a friend of God. The Holy Spirit is a sign that those who deserve great judgment have received great mercy. They receive the Spirit. They receive God's endorsement. Not in the same way that Jesus receives God's endorsement. Jesus is the unique Son of God. But the Holy Spirit is the sign that now you too have become part of God's people. The events of Acts 2 were not just relevant to those people back then, but to you right now. If you're a believer, then you have received the Spirit, which means you have received God's endorsements. That's worth celebrating. You've received His seal of approval, not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy, but because you're united to Christ, the only one who is worthy. Your connection with Jesus ensures your special status before God. Paul in Ephesians 1, writing to Christians, says that when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee. But the possession of the Spirit doesn't just speak to your position in God's people, it also speaks to your responsibility. F.F. Bruce in his commentary in Acts puts it this way, He writes that Jesus, who had earlier received the Spirit for the public discharge of his own earthly ministry, had now, upon his exaltation, received that same Spirit to impart to his representatives in order that they might continue and indeed share in the ministry that he's begun. So so you don't just have the Spirit for you to enjoy and bask in. Instead, his spirit empowers you now to spread the good news of the king to the ends of the earth, to, to, to in, in a sense, join Jesus in his ministry of redemption. Now, if you are here this morning as an unbeliever, first of all, I'm glad you're here or watching by video. You need to know that Peter's accusation against the people of Israel for killing Jesus is not just limited to them, ultimately. You did not literally drive the nails into his flesh. But the scriptures say that all people, apart from God's grace working in their hearts, are enemies of God, hating God, despising God. You know, some people, in a, in a warm and sentimental kind of way, say that, you know what? If you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have died for you. Well, that's great. But I'd like to push that further and say that if you were the only person on the planet, you would have killed Jesus. Because the murder of Jesus speaks ultimately to how we all feel about God apart from God's grace in our lives. Apart from a changed heart, we all want God dead. Most of us wouldn't admit it. 
But that's at the essence of what is in our hearts. Therefore, we all deserve God's judgment. Just as much as Pilate, just as much as the chief priest, just as much as the mob who shouted, crucify him, just as much as the Roman guards who, who nailed him to a slab of wood, we all deserve to be struck down by God for our outrageous rebellion against him. But God... But God so loved the world that he offered up the very Jesus that you hate to die for sins. So that if you might repent of your sins and turn to him even now, you too will be saved. If you feel like, well, how can this be? I've done too many bad things to be saved. That's not true. Peter is going to go on to say in his sermon in verse 30 that the promise is for you and for your children, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if you feel that call from him tugging on your heart right now, don't resist that. Don't resist it. Don't don't ignore it. Don't just put it to the side. Well, I'm going to go have some fun later on and and enjoy the Super Bowl. Don't, Don't set it aside. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious and perfect word that has spoken to us this morning. I pray that we would take it to heart, that both believers and unbelievers would be struck by this amazing sermon from Peter. That we would see anew and with fresh eyes the reality of who Jesus is, a man but so much more, one who is God in flesh one who lived a righteous life, one who died a death for sinners, one who conquered the grave, one who now has ascended and and is seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning, King and Lord over all. Father, for those of us who are believers, let us in our hearts again, afresh, anew, bend the knee to Jesus and re-pledge our allegiance to him and our love for him and help us to be better subjects of the kingdom and better ambassadors of the kingdom, taking the good news to to all who you might bring across our paths. And Father, for any who are listening to this who are not believers, Father, I pray that this day would be the day of their salvation, that they too would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that they too would be brought in to the people of God, and that they too then would be released and sent out into the world to do ministry and to preach the gospel so that others might hear and know and be saved. Thank you so much, Father, for your kindness and for your mercy and for your grace. And we acknowledge Jesus right now as Lord and Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.